Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Monday, September 14th, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. Have you become intimately acquainted with your own breath since you began wearing a mask? Here's how to curb the stench. Some insight into how non-human animals use numbers and quantitative information. The sad truth about plastic recycling. And Bielefeld, Germany, a town that may or may not exist, offered a million euro prize to anyone who can prove that it definitively does not exist. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Wearing a mask brings a lot of new experiences. Fogged up glasses, the stress of how to properly remove it, figuring out the right order of mask and headphones. As journalist Jill Gutowitz tweeted earlier this summer, quote, My ears are currently carrying sunglasses, headphones, and a face mask. Ears are a purse. End quote. But another revelation of this new normal, becoming intimately acquainted with your own breath and usually not in a particularly welcome way. Personally, on top of my normal dental hygiene routine, I've started swashing some mouthwash or putting on some of that peppermint-scented Burt's Bees lip balm before I leave the house with my mask on. But Katie Kelly had some additional tips in the New York Times this weekend that may help you out if you're ever bothered by this experience. First, the bad odor is caused by a buildup of bacteria, so Kelly recommends getting an electric toothbrush, which have been proven to remove more plaque than regular toothbrushes. And make sure you never skimp on flossing. If you're not a fan, there are an increasing number of softer microfiber flosses in an array of creative flavors these days, or you could just always get a water pick. But the real culprit of bad breath, where most of the bacteria accumulates, is the back of the tongue. So make sure you're actually brushing it. Although to really take care of matters, you should use one of those tongue scrapers or some mouthwash. And I was glad to hear that I'm on the right track with that one. And uh, hey, if while you're out and about, you encounter anti-mask people, you could let them know or just think silently to yourself that they're lucky they don't live in Indonesia right now. Apparently, in the province of East Java, at least eight people who refused to wear masks were punished by having to dig the graves of people who had died of COVID-19. Yeah, super dark. Apparently, this was a form of community service that they were assigned, and it's a new gravesite specific to people who had died from COVID-19, and therefore they only had a few gravedigger employees available, so the district head said he, quote, might as well put these people to work with them. So yeah, maybe just put a dang mask on before other towns and countries around the world decide to make the punishment fit the crime as well. So I've been hearing for years that recycling is not that effective. Compostables are better, reusing is excellent, and decreasing our overall reliance on plastic is the best. But honestly, I've never really looked into the details of it all, so when Planet Money ran an episode on it last week, I was a little taken aback by the reality of the situation. Although in hindsight, I really shouldn't have been. So basically, the big oil and gas companies who make plastic have always known that recycling plastic would barely work. But they've sold us on the lie because if we think we're being responsible by recycling, we won't worry about buying more and more plastic. NPR and PBS Frontline have spent months combing through internal documents and speaking to insiders. They found evidence of the knowledge that recycling plastic, quote, 
can't ever be made viable on an economic basis, end quote, in one industry individual speech from 1974. And quoting Planet Money, here's the basic problem. All used plastic can be turned into new things, but picking it up, sorting it out, and melting it down is expensive. Plastic also degrades each time it's reused, meaning it can't be reused more than once or twice. On the other hand, new plastic is cheap. It's made from oil and gas, and it's almost always less expensive and of better quality to just start fresh. All of these problems have existed for decades, no matter what new recycling technology or expensive machinery has been developed. In all that time, less than 10% of plastic has ever been recycled. But the public has known little about these difficulties. End quote. And while a lot of the methods over the years were arguably nefarious, like as the public began to see the problems with plastic, investors and lobbyists feared the end of the industry and began campaigns to help the public fall back in love with plastic, or at least make them feel less guilty about using it by having major oil and gas companies sponsor a myriad of recycling programs and public stunts. But some of the initiatives, or at least a few of the people behind them, held out hope that maybe, somehow, if they took off on a large enough scale, it would eventually be economically feasible. Like Ron Lysimir from the Council of Solid Waste Solutions, who was tasked with introducing curbside recycling in Minnesota and other places. I'm quoting again, But then he ran into the same problem all the industry documents found. Recycling plastic wasn't making economic sense. There were too many different kinds of plastic, hundreds of them, and they can't be melted down together. They have to be sorted out. Yes, it can be done, Lysimer says, but who's going to pay for it? Because it gets into too many applications. It goes into too many structures that would just not be practical to recycle, end quote. But all those campaigns did achieve the mission of increasing plastic's popularity in the public consciousness again, as people thought that the plastic they were recycling was being well, recycled. The problem was that only a few types of plastic could be recycled in most facilities, things like milk jugs commonly. But in the early 90s came the introduction of the recycling symbol. It was stamped on every piece of plastic with a number inside that indicated what type of plastic it was, and therefore whether it could be recycled in what places, but most people didn't realize that. They just saw the famous recycling triangle and assumed that meant they could recycle it which then led to recycling facilities overwhelmed with tons of different types of plastic that they weren't able to recycle. And this wasn't a bug. It was a feature. Quoting NPR, Industry documents from this time show that just a couple of years earlier, starting in 1989, oil and plastics executives began a quiet campaign to lobby almost 40 states to mandate that the symbol appear on all plastic, even if there was no way to economically recycle it. End quote. To avoid plastics that people think are being recycled from being buried in landfills, burned, or ending up in the ocean, many recycling facilities are trying to improve their automatic sorting abilities. But that process is hindered as cities allow more and more items to be recycled. Many cities continue to expand the plastics that can be recycled, vowing to vastly decrease what is sent to landfills because even though there are better, in some cases economically better, ways to decrease greenhouse gases, recycling is what the vast majority of people believe works and what they want to see happen. And there are definitely ways things can be rearranged so that money and effort are being used in more effective directions, but if, for now, plastic that you think you're recycling is actually ending up in a landfill, there are some people out there like John Tierney who will argue that's not the worst thing. 
Quoting his 2015 New York Times op-ed, All the trash generated by Americans for the next thousand years would fit on one-tenth of one percent of the land available for grazing. And that tiny amount of land wouldn't be lost forever, because landfills are typically covered with grass and converted to parkland, like the Fresh Kills Park being created on Staten Island. The United States Open Tennis Tournament is played on the site of an old landfill, and one that never had the linings and other environmental safeguards required today. Cities have been burying garbage for thousands of years, and it's still the easiest and cheapest solution for trash, end quote. Well, I'm not entirely convinced by that super pro-landfill argument, but I do know that a surefire effective solution, despite what all the oil and gas lobbies want, is to substantially reduce how much plastic we're using and producing altogether. Today I learned that we humans are not the only ones who engage with the world through numbers and quantitative information. The processing of numbers by other animals increases their survivability through hunting, protection, socializing, and more. But it's not just non-human animals. Even microscopic bacteria make use of numbers, according to Andrea Nieder's new book, A Brain for Numbers, The Biology of the Number Instinct. In recent years, microbiologists have determined that bacteria can sense the presence of other bacteria, and some will display special properties when they do, like bioluminescence in some marine bacterium, for example. Quoting an excerpt of the book published in MIT Press Reader, Somehow they have to communicate cell number, and it turns out they do this using a chemical language. They secrete communication molecules, and the concentration of these molecules in the water increases in proportion to the cell number. And when this molecule hits a certain amount, called a quorum, it tells the other bacteria how many neighbors there are, and all bacteria glow. The bacteria vote with signaling molecules, the vote gets counted, and if a certain threshold, the quorum, is reached, every bacterium responds. End quote. And quorum sensing appears beyond bacteria too, like in Japanese ants who have to reach a quorum before deciding to move the colony to a new location. There's also the way many animals find strength in numbers when hunting prey. Wolves, for example, have been found to have a consistently optimal number in their party when going after elk versus bison. With prey so large, they need enough of them to be formidable, but because the prey will fight back to the death, it's advisable to hold back to a certain extent. Studies have shown that wolves aim for 2 to 6 of themselves for elk and 9 to 13 for bison, but the numbers level off after that. Quoting again, There is strength in numbers during hunting, but only up to a certain number that is dependent on the toughness of their prey. End quote. And for fending off predators, the use of quantitative information can get even more precise. Scientists found that the black-capped chickadee don't just tweet out alarm calls when they sense danger, they actually have a system to indicate the scale of danger. For less harmless predators, they produce just two DDs at the end of their namesake chickadee call, but that increases to four for their most dangerous predators. And there is a whole host of ways that numbers play into reproduction across species, namely in terms of sensing out competitors and calculating odds of successful procreation. Quoting once more, The existing selection pressures, whether imposed by the inanimate environment or by other animals, force populations of species to maintain or increase adaptive traits caused by specific genes. If assessing number helps in this struggle to survive and reproduce, it surely is appreciated and relied on. 
This explains why numerical competence is so widespread in the animal kingdom. It evolved either because it was discovered by a previous common ancestor and passed on to all descendants, or because it was invented across different branches of the animal tree of life. Irrespective of its evolutionary origin, one thing is certain. Numerical competence is most certainly an adaptive trait. End quote. So this perhaps answers at least part of the question that the viral math girl on TikTok had. Is math even real? How did people come up with it to begin with? Well, at least at its most basic level, it seems to be baked into all living things and selected for in our survival. Have you ever heard of Bielefeld, Germany? Well, whether you have or not doesn't matter, because it doesn't exist. At least, so the conspiracy theory goes. There's not really too much to this conspiracy theory, actually. In fact, it's mostly an internet joke making fun of conspiracy theories. And it's a really old internet joke, though, and has now become a running joke in Germany. So much so that last month, the town itself, Bielefeld, which I'm positive I'm pronouncing correctly, offered 1 million euros to whoever could prove the conspiracy theory that Bielefeld is not real. People could submit photos, videos, text, whatever media they wanted to make their case that the town they were submitting their evidence to was not real. But how did this whole thing start? With a simple joke from then-student Achim Held on German Usenet in 1994 that just said, Bielefeld? There's no such thing. The joke went the 1994 equivalent of viral and has kept up in certain circles, mostly in Bielefeld ever since. Even Chancellor Angela Merkel joked about Bielefeld existing after all when she spoke there in 2012. Quoting Atlas Obscura, According to the Bielefeld conspiracy, the city of Bielefeld is an illusion, and no village is actually there. Believers in the conspiracy ask non-believers three questions. Have you ever been to Bielefeld? Do you know anyone from Bielefeld? And do you know anybody who has ever been to Bielefeld? To most people, the answer to these three questions is no, supposedly proving the conspiracist's point. Conspiracy theorists claim the city was invented by a fictional entity called C, translating to them, possibly with the help of the Israeli intelligence agency Mossad or aliens disguising their spaceship as Bielefeld University. The gag has become a cesspool of conspiracy cliches. At one point, it was speculated that Elvis Presley and Kurt Cobain are still alive at Bielefeld, and that the CIA has used Bielefeld to prevent JFK from revealing the truth about the moon landings. End quote. And as for the contest, the town received entries from all over the world, including complicated arguments citing quantum physics, but after consulting with local scientists and archivists, they decided definitively, quote, Bielefeld is just too beautiful not to be true, end quote. And so no one gets the 1 million euros, apparently, if it ever existed at all. Well, that is all for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kaki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I'm going to go see how many different things I can fashion out of the used plastic in my house. I hope you have had a great start to the week, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.